William Shatner, welcome back to Earth. Thank you. It's great to be back. You must have found your short trek to space very engaging. I did. It was deeply, deeply moving. And surely it's warped your view of life on Earth. That much is true. I am a changed man. You truly have made it to the final frontier. Yes, and I'm truly privileged that I did. It's so great to see you beaming. (laughs) Oh dear, it looks like you're suffering from a bout of space sickness. No, I'm just totally nauseated at all these terrible puns. Hello and welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth and I'm relatively fit and well. He's Zog and he's relatively fit and well, I think. Zog, aren't you? So far, yeah. Hopefully we'll have to update you on that before the end of the show, but yeah, feeling good. (laughs) And sounding a little different to how she normally does... Sarah Crokey Leach. Let's hear your voice, Sarah. Uh, hi there. Yes, hi. I'm alive and almost well, so I'm on the men's from what must be some sort of change in season cold. We like you with a husky voice. <laughs> it's not unattractive. You make it work. How are you feeling? You're right. Yeah, I'm good. I'm a bit surprised because I don't usually get sick, but I feel like maybe all the face masks and the sanitizing and all of that has maybe put my system not in touch with being around germs and things like that. I don't know. But I was at a function last week and I think that's where I picked something up. The Broadcast Awards. Yeah, you've been kissing strange men. That's what it is. Uh, Well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, hopefully you will stay fit and well for the duration of this programme. To talk, as we always do, in the first part of the show about Formula One. Zog, did you enjoy the Turkish Grand Prix? It wasn't the most thrilling race, but um, Mm -hmm. there was some excitement at the end. Yeah, I'd give it six out of ten, I think. Sarah, what score would you give the Turkish Grand Prix? Probably something similar. I mean, the writing was on the wall a little bit, particularly when Charles Clerk was out front, things like that. Of course, his tyres were going to wear out. I kind of could see it all sort of about to play out in my eyes. Also, one thing that I thought was strange, actually, was that Lewis Hamilton signed his pole position trophy and addressed it to Valtteri. He said, Dear Valtteri, enjoy my pole position, Lewis. And gave him Is the that pole right? Trophy. I didn't spot Did that. Did you not see that? Yeah, it was all on social media. I don't know. If I was Valtteri, I, I just thought it was a bit weird. Well, I guess the reasoning behind that was that Lewis got the quickest lap, yeah. but wasn't able to stay on pole for the start of the race because of engine penalties, started from 11th. So technically, Valtteri inherited it, I suppose. But yeah, that's a bit harsh in itself. At first blush, it seems a little bit harsh, a little bit rude. But yeah, but as you say, there's a very clear technical reason why Valtteri, who was second quickest in the last session, ended up on pole. You know, we knew that Hamilton was going to get that 10th place grid penalty. Yeah. You know, actually, I think there's no malice in it. It's not rude. But there's maybe an element of... Ah... It could be interpreted a number of ways, couldn't it? You know how competitive racing drivers are, and I'm sure there's an element of Lewis just wanting to remind Valtteri that actually, yeah, you're on pole, but I'm still quicker. 
Yeah. You know, they do like to remind each other, you know, that thing where you meet a driver and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, Valtteri Bottas, I used to race against him in Formula 3. I beat him all the time. Yeah. They all do that sort of thing, don't they? Absolutely. You're right. Six out of 10 is probably the right score, I'd say, for the Turkish Grand Prix. It wasn't an exciting race per se, was it, Sarah? But it was really tense. That was the overwhelming feeling, particularly as we got to the latter stages of the race, when Lewis decided to hang on as long as he possibly can on his intermediates, which were now effectively slicks. They were worn right down to the construction, as it were. You know, they weren't necessarily treaded tyres anymore at all. They were effectively slicks. And then that call came in for Lewis to switch to a new set of intermediates, losing the position that he was in at the time, which is, I think, was fourth at the time. I think he... He, he, uh, he, was, he was third, dropped him back to fifth. Thank you. And I'm sure everybody's heart sank as much as Lewis's did. Lewis actually sounded a bit tense as the rest of us did watching that. Not surprising, really. What did you think, Sarah, of Lewis's tone on the radio as he was speaking to the pit wall? I think at the time he was very passionate at the way he was driving and after yep. the race he put something on social media saying or well, addressing his fans saying that it was an in the moment sort of decision and he was we you know we're all passionate drivers and that's what he really wanted to do in the end I don't think it was the right call I think he admitted that maybe he could have gone with what his engineers were telling him to do but yeah his tone was just very passionate very driver racing and I suppose he should have just put up and shut up and trusted his team that was sitting in the garage. Yeah, it's a difficult call to make. If it's dry and it's starting to get wet, it's easier to make the decision to put on intermediates than when you've got a wet track that's drying. Who knows best? And whichever decision you make, you know, it's either going to be the right one or the wrong one, Zog, isn't it? Well, yeah, as you say, very difficult decision. In Sochi, there was a similar situation where Hamilton felt one way about what they should do with tyres. The team was telling him something else. The team was right, and the team's strategy call was clearly right, and Hamilton's feeling was clearly wrong in retrospect. This time, we don't know. You just don't know whether those tyres would have made it to the end of the race, and that's the critical thing. We know that Ocon, who was the only driver that stayed out on tyres right to the end, really lost pace at the end. Leclerc, who, let's remember, had inherited the lead yep. when Bottas and Verstappen had come in for tyres near the end, was obviously hoping to hang on to that lead on his almost done tyres. But there came a moment where he was just getting too slow and had to pit for new intermediates. Maybe Hamilton's tyres would have hung on. He's very good at making tyres last. But imagine the situation where if in the last lap he'd had a tyre failure and they didn't finish as a result. And I think Ocon actually said he thought that if he'd gone another lap on those tyres, he might well have had a tyre failure. Yep. So, yeah, I think the team got it right. And yeah, like <laughs> Sarah, you know. Bless you, Sarah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Hamilton should have come in when they called him in the first time. Maybe they were playing a little bit safe, but I think that was the right call. I think they actually played it right, because according to Pirelli, the guy who's representing Pirelli at the circuit, 
When they analysed Lewis's tyres afterwards, they were fairly confident that those tyres would not have made it to the end of the race. So, yeah, a cautious call from Mercedes, which I think was probably the right one. Uh, I mean, that's the beauty of this sport. They have access to all this data and all these data gathering points and the maths and they think they know best but sometimes you kind of got to go on a gut feeling and that's what makes it exciting I also remember during the race laughing quietly to myself thinking they were running so long so long on these intermediates that they were regularly looking for wet patches on the circuit you know, to cool down the tyres to stop them overheating. And this is effectively like lying in bed after sex in reverse, isn't it? You know, you try to avoid the damp patch, but they're actively looking for the wet patch, giggling quietly to myself. <laughs> well done. You, okay, the yeah, things they, that go through you, your mind. You've hit a new low in uh, <laughs> in Formula One <laughs> racing analogies there, Gareth. Wasn't um, much more yeah. than I'd compare <laughs> it to <you>. that. <laughs> the stuff that goes through my mind when you're racing and it's a bit boring. You have no idea. But they were very funny conditions, weren't they? Yeah. I'm not sure I can remember a race where it stayed so consistently, yeah. you know, quite damp. Yeah. It didn't really get any wetter at any point, although a little bit of rain seemed to come in. And it was only at the very end where it started to dry up on the racing line a bit. Yeah. But usually it goes one way or the other. It doesn't sort of yeah. stay at that sort of intermediate level for so long weird Sarah you won't remember this I don't think well I know you're not old enough but I'm trying to remember the last time a driver stayed on one set of tyres for the entire race was Olivier Panis when he was driving Olivier at Monaco in something like 1996 and for those of us old enough to remember that, he won Panis as a result of that. You know, so sometimes hanging on and being really brave like that can give you great rewards. But, you know, the other side of it is you're a massive failure if it all goes wrong. Oh, we all saw that coming. We're all Captain Hindsight, aren't we? I thought Lewis showed great maturity early on. He was in no hurry to get past people like Sonoda. I don't know how difficult it was for him to get past Sonoda, but I think Lewis was quite cautious and took a few laps to understand the grip level before he then started working his way from 11th up to 3rd, ultimately. Actually, I thought Sonoda did a very good job of keeping <coughs> Hamilton behind him. We've said before that Sonoda's been a real kind of mix. You know, there have been races and there have been spells where he just looks terrific and a really strong young talent. And there are other races where he's just nowhere and looks kind of how you'd expect a relatively unknown back of the grid driver to do. But this is one of his really strong races, I thought. He just withstood pressure from Hamilton. Like you say, Hamilton wasn't really taking big risks, but he knows how to pass slower cars. Sonoda and Hamilton and Perez and Hamilton were the two... Yeah difficult passing jobs that Hamilton had to get done. So I think he acquitted himself well, actually. Yeah, Lewis managed to get past everybody, I think, didn't he? He struggled getting past Perez, but that was exciting. Sarah, I don't know if you saw the dicing that went on. There were four corners, weren't there, between Lewis and Perez that were exciting. Yes, it was probably fair to say the only wheel-to-wheel action in the race. Yeah, that is fair. Fair comment. Well, although there was also the first lap incident with Gasly 
punting Alonso off, yeah. which was, well, wheel to side pod, I guess, rather than wheel to wheel. But do you think that was fair? I thought that was I don't. very harsh. Yeah, I agree, because he had Perez on the inside, didn't he? He had nowhere to go, and he got a penalty for that. Um, Sarah, I'm guessing you're thinking the opposite. As an Alonso fan, you think it's definitely <laughs> Gasly's fault. Yeah, I am a bit of an Alonso fan. Correct, yes. <laughs> Tycho was sitting next to me, my son, watching the race, and he said something very funny. He can be very harsh, Tycho, I have to say. He said, imagine being paid to qualify 15th then just a spin out at the back. Oh, it was talking about Latifi. Whoa. Dear me. Tough. I'm really sorry to report that once again, one of the drivers I've become more and more fond of over the course of the last couple of years. Well, in fact, probably the last season, but just doesn't seem to perform. Vettel made a terrible mistake. He decided to go for slicks and then... Went backwards, Ooh, went yeah. off the track. That was horrible to watch. Yeah, brave call. I mean, given how slow he was, how much he was sliding around, it seems surprising that a driver with his experience made such a wrong call. You'd think he would just have a better feel for just what the level of grip on the track is. Yeah. Either he got it massively wrong just on the basis of you know what he was feeling... Or the team had an idea that the track was just about to dry up. But surely that can't be right. I think it was more of a... He just got it massively wrong. Shame. Guess you had nothing to lose, I suppose, and we're trying anything. Sarah, you're the one who sort of watches the sporting side of this championship closer than the rest of us in terms of who's leading who. Max has now inched ahead of Lewis in the championship, hasn't he, again? Uh, yeah, Max is six points ahead of Lewis in the championship. But had Lewis had have stuck to the strategy that his teammate said and he finished on the podium, he would have just been within one of Max Verstappen. But, yes, you're very correct. Max is now leading the championship. He's six points ahead of Lewis with, I think, about six races to go. Yeah. Yeah, six to go. So, prediction time. Sarah, who would you say is going to win this? Is it going to be Lewis or Max? I do think that Lewis probably will come through and win. I do. Actually, it's my gut feeling. But in saying that, probably there's a, I don't know, 45% part of me that feels that Max Verstappen will win because Red Bull are putting all their resources into this season and it's a really good chance for them to win the world championship. Uh, Mercedes are concentrating on putting their resources into next year's car and Max Verstappen is very determined. So it could come, you know, down to the wire. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I think it will, and we love it when it does. It won't be decided until the last laps of the last race, I, I hope, so. and that's how I love it. Sarah, go and rest your throat. <laughs> go and, you. I don't know, gargle with Vicks or whatever <laughs> it is you're supposed to do. No, don't do that. That's horrible. That's horrible. But thank you for joining us, my darling. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, our pleasure. Go and rest your voice. Have a duvet yeah. day. Bye for now, okay. Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers. And Zog, you stick around because uh, joining you and me to talk all things road cars in the next part of Gareth Jones on Speed will be your friend and mine, Alex Goy. Martin Whitmarsh, welcome back to Formula One. Uh, thank you. It's uh, really nice to be back. Congratulations on your appointment as CEO for Aston Martin Performance Technologies. Thank you very much. And what would you say it's that uh, you bring to this team? Well, um, hopefully, a little organisation, some uh, new ideas, a plan for the future, 
and the sort of performance levels that I brought to the McLaren team uh, when I was there. So, 8th to 12th on track and the occasional 3rd in the Constructors' Championship? Uh, yes. That's not a very high standard, is it? No. But heck, it's still way better than where Aston Martin are right now. Joining us for the second half of this episode of Gareth Jones on Speed from his virus-free bunker in South London, Alex Goy. Alex, are you healthier than poor old Sarah was? She was rotten. How are you? Are you fitting well? I'm all right. My nose is a bit bunged up, but that's just, it's winter now, isn't it? Or it's yeah. autumn. There's a season outside that isn't hot and nice anymore. So yeah, I'm all right. I'm just a bit tired and run down, but that's standard. I've got tea, so I'm happy. Good. Yeah, I'm slightly under myself. Not quite ill, but not quite full strength yeah. I think you're right it's just the season for it listen something that occurred to me I think you'll both appreciate this whether you like Formula 1 or not and by that I mean Zog who does and Alex who doesn't <laughs> and me who definitely doesn't whilst watching the Turkish Grand Prix the other day you wouldn't have seen this Alex but the Red Bull team turned up in white a white livery instead of their usual sort of navy blue colour and it was a tribute to Honda because this was supposed to have been the Suzuka Grand Prix at the weekend but that was cancelled due to Covid and so they had it in Turkey instead so we had this Japanese themed car running in Turkey slightly bonkers but it looked great it looked Beautiful. It was modelled after Richie Ginther's famous Honda first win in something like 1966. It looks like the Japanese flag, just basically red and white. It looked lovely. And it made me think, hmm, what other special liveries could we have in Formula One? Bear with me on this, because we had the Gulf liveried McLarens at Monaco this year. That looked gorgeous. And it suddenly occurred to me, why the heck didn't Aston Martin at this race or in any race over the last month run their cars in silver birch which is the colour of Bond's Aston Martin in the Bond movies because you know they're doing all the promotion for the Bond movie which spills over to the Formula One team I think the answer is the reason why they didn't do it in Silver Birch is they're still hammering the fact home that Aston Martin race in British Racing Green in Formula One now. But that would be a great special livery, wouldn't it? A Silver Birch, Formula One, Aston Martin. It would look lovely. Oh, Which, of course, leads me to... Have you seen the new film, The Bond Movie? Yeah, I've seen it. It's great. I haven't, so no spoilers. All no the spoilers. spoilers. I can't believe he did that with that thing. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing, oh. wasn't it? That thing he did. Yeah. And what about that other thing that la, happened? La, la, that was la, totally la, la, amazing. Oh, that was amazing. Well, if, if there's any <laughs> consolations, Og, if you've seen any of the trailers, you've seen the first 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. I've kind of been through phases of, you know, I generally love a good Bond film. The thing is, with this film, I've been through probably a couple of phases of being excited that there was a new Bond film coming along and then getting absolutely totally fed up and bored of the idea of it because I've been waiting so long and it keeps getting put off and put off and put off and then it sort of you know comes into view on the horizon again and you get a little bit excited so I've kind of been excited been over it I'm excited again but probably not quite as excited as I would have been if it had actually come out you know mm. 18 months ago. but um... It's deeply satisfying, Zog. No spoilers, but yeah, no, I'm looking forward Violet to it. and I went to see it. And Violet's not the biggest Bond fan. 
she's grown to love Daniel Craig in the last few weeks where we've been sort of discussing the Daniel Craig backstory but she absolutely loved this film well the two of us did I thought it was great and as a car man did you do a lot of car spotting in the film Alex did you spot all the interesting cars yes I spotted as many interesting cars as I could there's a Maserati that was quite lovely there's a Ferrari as well Maserati Quattroporte yes there are several Ferraris several Ferraris just looking pretty I can't remember the so I can't say too much because we don't want to spoil yeah. it if people hasn't seen it because it's only been out for like less than a fortnight now. Yeah. I can't remember any of the interesting cars in that place where the lady who was in another film with Daniel Craig yeah. has that fight in that place. I can't remember anything yeah. from there. <laughs> but the Astons were cracking and the Land Rovers were cool as well. Yeah. Why is it the baddies always get to drive Jaguars and Land Rovers? This has become a Bond trope. Because Jaguar and Land Rover paid Eon a lot of money. To be baddies. <laughs> Do Jaguar and Land Rover want to be perceived as baddies though this is the well they thing. did a whole ad campaign around it ages ago with Tom Hiddleston yeah, yeah. in a helicopter That's going right. it's always better to be the bad guy wouldn't you say that Jaguar traditionally has a slightly rakish image you know yes the, um, it's, it, it's it, it of... goes back to like the Sweeney and cops and robbers in the 60s doesn't it mm. you know uh, both the good guys and the bad guys drove Jags yeah. in the 60s didn't they yeah yeah but there were lots of other cars in it as well. There was a Maserati Quattroporte. There was a, a Lancia, I noticed at one point. Was it a... Oh, gosh, I can't remember which one it was. It was the last Lancia saloon. A thesis. Thema? Thesis. It was a thesis. You're right, yes. I just saw the grill and almost ejaculated. No, I didn't say that. No, no, I, I was very excited to see like a Lancia. Lancia. <laughs> well, it was in Italy, and I was really glad, good to see representation. Yeah. There was a V8 Vantage, of course. There's a lovely V8 that was yeah. the one out of the living daylights, allegedly, Yeah, that was beautiful. I got to see that in person at Bassi Power Station. When they were launching that. When they did the DB5 in a box thing. I got to sit there yeah. and basically dribble on it, because it's beautiful. Oh. It's the hottest thing oh. in the world. That was yeah. stunning. There was the briefest of glimpses of a Valhalla. Yes! I hadn't clocked that it was a Valhalla. It was at the time I thought, oh, that's the... Um, the Valkyrie. The Valkyrie, yeah. But it was only in retrospect you realised, oh, actually, no, that was a Valhalla. And it doesn't really feature... No. ...elsewhere in the film. It's only just, it's just as, there. It's a bit yeah. like there's a, there's a scene where they're talking next to some motorbikes and it's like, well, there are some motorbikes yeah. there. Is there going to be another... No, 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 they're just nope. there. <laughs> I mean, that Valhalla is something that you could really make into a great Bond car because, you know, the cockpit could itself become some sort of subaquatic vessel separated from the wheels. It would be a prime candidate for a Bond ultra gadget, but it just didn't happen. But it was nice to see no, it No, it was just there. Aston Martin went, look at our lovely Valhalla. It's there. Though instead, there was a lovely DBS Superleggera. Yeah, which Nomi drives. A car with so much power that it overwhelms its track control on a regular basis which is no bad thing if you're a masochist and it looked so modern compared to the db5 db5 and the vantage like well the the v8 yeah it it did look good and it was right for that character who we can't say anything about because zog hasn't seen the film (laughs) sorry zog can't say anything i could turn my headphones off for a couple of minutes if you like no because there'll also be people out here who also haven't seen the film quite right there was a guy on twitter last night he was a journalist and he was like well i'm just going to read the plot and then just gave out two massive plot points on Twitter. Just like, well, that's a bit of a dick move. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, it is. I realised something watching this Bond movie, which the DB5 Mm. offers 
Bond movies, which the bigger, fatter, tired, grippier cars don't. And that is the DB5 slides around a lot, particularly mm. when you're racing around on cobbles well, so in that, Italy. Here's a fun fact. That was in the trailer. You, yeah, For, yeah that, that was in the trailer. So we can talk about that. So that is in the city or town of Metera or Metra in Italy, where the cobbles are made of marble. Wow. So the floor is amazingly slippery already. Mm. And do you know how they got around that? Go on. Gallons and gallons of fizzy drink. Really? They just covered it in sticky fizzy drink to give a bit more traction. Really? Not too much traction, though. Because do you remember there's a chase sequence in Italy? Is it in Spectre? Where that Jaguar concept, the CX-75... DB, uh, uh, DB10 versus CX-75 uh, through Rome. Yeah. That's one of the things that really angered me about Spectre, so I'm going full Bond nerd now, proper partridge, yeah. where they're like, oh, this chase is going to be great, it's going to be brilliant, and it's five minutes, and it's really underwhelming. <laughs> and it's really slow motion, because they weren't allowed to drive faster than 30 miles per hour or something like that. And it looks slow and one of the reasons this is my whole thesis about this and it looks slow is you've got these big grippy cars which go around relatively quick corners without skidding and sliding whereas if you put a db5 on the same surface whether it's cobbles whether it's slippy whether it's tarmac the fact that it slides around so much it makes it look so much more dramatic so long may the db5 live in bond films because it looks so much more sideways than anything else at street speeds well you know what that db5 actually was go on because it wasn't a real db5 because that that would be no, insane no. it was uh, an e36 m3 motor on its own chassis with a DB5 body. No way. That's very interesting. It's an M3 made to look like a DB5. Which is a good car to slide. Yeah. I know a few people who have driven them. There's reports that they have been driven out there and people are like, this is the best thing ever. I look like James Bond and I'm sliding around like a lunatic. I want more (laughs) of this, please. (laughs) Good factoid. But Gareth, you're talking about how realistic or the physics of cars in the Bond movies. Let's remember that car handling and car physics in movies movies is a different thing to real world physics Correct. You know, mm. in, in movies cars flip over much more easily than in real life yeah they spin their wheels and they skid much more easily in real life and they lose significant chunks of roof bodywork and all kinds of other <laughs> things and keep going yep. much more easily than in real life it's an enhanced a tweaked version of reality yeah so there's a sequence in the movie and i'm going to do this without spoilers believe me where bond is chased as he always is by people in land rovers at some point in a film good good yeah and he's driving a toyota land cruiser which is one of the most unbond cars since the De Chaveau or that Renault 11 that Roger Moore sliced in half a uh, long Tough time and practical, ago. though. Come on, you know, it's not Very a bad choice car. for a go-anywhere, yeah. tough, all-action secret agent. And exactly as you've just described, Zoggy, Bond manages to keep this fairly humble, robust vehicle on four wheels, whilst all the vehicles chasing him are lured into situations where they roll, they flip, they end over end. I mean, it's all in the driving skills, clearly. All in the driving skills. We touched on real-world versus movie car stuff and physics. One thing that has just come to mind is, I believe that if you actually try and shoot car tyres out, it's much, much harder in real life to do it than in movies. Well, they're moving. Well, not just they're moving, but the bullets are much more likely to bounce off a rubber tyre than they are to puncture it, unless you're using rounds that are kind of you know, designed for that or that have characteristics that lend themselves to being more likely to 
puncture a tyre. It's really quite hard to shoot car tyres out, even if you hit them. So I believe. Well, this is where the design of bulletproof vests is going completely wrong. You should just strap a Pirelli 185 to your chest and spin it a bit. No one would be able to kill you, would they? The most humble car in the Bond movie, which I spotted, and no spoilers here, because I think it appears in the trailer where Bond is driving the DB5, the machine gun sequence. Mm. There is a Fiat Ritmo in the square. And I was genuinely excited about seeing a Fiat Ritmo, sold as the Fiat Strada in the UK, of course, in the 70s. You just don't see those these days. And for me, that was one of the most satisfying bits of this Bond film. Highly recommended. Go and see it, Zog, today, I implore you. I will be going to see it in the next week. This weekend is penciled in, so, yeah, I'll let you know what I think. There's another Aston Martin that's been making the rounds recently in all the press. Something which perhaps Q himself might be proud of, and that is not an Aston Martin DB5, but an Aston Martin DB6 that's been, well, modernised in very clever ways. Zog, you're across this. What's it called? The Lunas DB6. Yes, it's a conversion by a specialist British company based near, based opposite Silverstone. They're they're right opposite Silverstone. I drove past their office yesterday. Right. Well, there you go, Luna. And they have converted quite a few high-end classic vehicles to electric drivetrains recently. Old Bentley Continentals, assorted Rolls Royces, Jaguar XJ120s. And their next project is a DB6, or several DB6s. Maybe Alex can tell us more about this. They are rolling out an electric DB6 conversion. They take an old DB6, do a full resto mod and swap out the old internal combustion bits for an electric drivetrain and it's hellishly expensive looks pretty neat though lunas is one of those companies that sort of appeared on my radar out of nowhere last year i get a sort of phone call saying do you want to come and drive an xk120 with a bit of a difference and i went to their old facility up in silverstone and the way they operate is fascinating because they take the car they want and then they laser scan it to do a full restoration so when someone says oh yeah we've done a full resto on this car and then you kind of lift up a carpet and the thing's full of holes they go no we are going to just take this apart which is why the xk120 i think starts at three hundred and thirty thousand, something like that wow db6 is even more so they do this full like rebuild they make the body perfect they make it structurally sound They re-trim, re-upholster the interior. They redo the interior. Everything is original as it can be, but, you know, rather than a rev count, you have a power reserve dial. And the Luna's logo is dotted around bits of the car. So when you see one, you'll be like, oh, hang on, there should be a four-speed gear stick, but there isn't. And what's going on here and what's going on there? The really fascinating thing is, Formula One fans, Luna's tech is proprietary. Yeah, I heard this. They build everything themselves. Because it's a money-no-object. The battery sells someone else's but the way it all works has been devised by john hilton who you may remember from running renault formula one for a bit yeah he helped run their engine department mm. for a while in the early 2000s that's him that's his handiwork he is lunas or he isn't lunas but he's the guy behind it and he's the engineering brain that's making all this work mm. they've got the rolls phantom and bentley continental which they've got massive banks of batteries the idea being you can do three or four or however many hundred miles on a charge and the car won't worry about such a thing. So you can have one at the Savoy and off it'll go. And the XK120 
had a go in that just absolutely staggering thing i've been waiting to do a film with them for a little over a year now since they said i could film their rolls royce they've released three cars i think <laughs> so there might be a film at some point but they've kept me waiting a, a fair old while well, <laughs> but the tech works it would be very nice if they would actually do the thing that they said I could do. <laughs> but the company's great. And what they've started to do is... Because I had last interviewed the man at the top, lovely chap called David Lawrence. I interviewed him a few months ago and he alluded to the Lunars group. So their first workshop was sort of a little one in Silverstone. They've just moved this massive facility where you've got these guys, sort of artisan people. Like It's proper, proper, proper atelier style building and creation mm. that they put into it he alluded to the lunars group which he shouldn't have done at the time but now they've got investors like david beckham which is bizarre and they're yeah. putting this electric tech into commercial and industrial vehicles like bin lorries david beckham is that what the db stands for in db6 in the lunars db6 <laughs> oh i mean that would be nice but i don't think so <laughs> it's a proper cool company lots has been written about them and the firm there are, there are a couple of drives of uh, the xk120 out there in the wild but yeah there's more to come from them they're doing loads and loads and loads so you can get a range rover you can do the db6 you can do a rolls or a bentley or the xk120 and it just depends on what people want like lauren's plan he wants to electrify all the cars like his whole thing was he loves classic cars he adores them the inspiration for the business he was driving in a merc 300 sl with his daughter and it inevitably broke down and he was like how do i give her this car but make it so that she wants to and can drive it mm. yeah well the electrification of classics is something that we've touched on many times on this program over the last few years mm. and it seems to be not only gathering ground, but also favouring small, individual, kind of artisan, bespoke companies who are able to electrify cars with relatively off-the-shelf bits, then re-engineered for specific purpose. You know, you can find a motor, you can find a battery pack now, and you might say that it is bespoke, but what they're talking about is the installation being bespoke. It's not as difficult to do that as it is to build a whole new internal combustion engine car, I think. The Lunar's powertrain is bespoke. It's a sort of money-no-object thing. The Everati one, so that 911 yep. that's been doing the rounds, that is Tesla bits underneath yeah, And there are a few more that I don't quite know, but I think taking a Tesla powertrain and sticking it in a car is a lot easier yep. than, as you say, I need to develop my own internal mm. combustion engine. But also not an entirely straightforward job, I believe. No, no, God, no. <laughs> I'd attempt a fair few, maybe even slightly challenging, DIY jobs as a mechanic on my own vehicle, but it's not something I'd attempt. I believe that would be quite a challenge. I'd be interested to see how the balance of the car works out, where they're putting the batteries, because as we all know, the best place to do that is in between your wheels in a skateboard chassis. And if you're re-engineering an old Aston Martin, you don't have the luxury of doing that. So you've got to split your batteries between the boot and the bonnet, presumably. You know, you're putting great pendulous weights on the outside of the wheelbase, arguably. Mm. But they make great claims for this car. They say that the range is something like 255 miles. 
really at what speed? At 30 miles per hour? Certainly not at motorway speeds. It can't possibly be because it's got an 80 kilowatt hour battery pack. Is that right? Let's wait for Alex's road test before we jump to conclusions. You know, yeah, let's, let's uh, wait for that to happen. It may be this year, maybe next year. Let's find out. <laughs> but yeah, Alex, yeah. jumping ahead to something that you have actually driven recently another british car and ray this one's got an internal combustion engine i'm not down on electric cars but this again is a kind of a relic from a bygone age that's been modernized in a very different sort of way tell us about it alex it is you're gonna have to use the bleep button this is a ridiculous vehicle (laughs) there's no reason for it to exist it's the morgan cxt which did the rounds think in august is when it was unveiled to the world It's essentially what happens if you get a Morgan Plus 4 and give it to Dakar specialists. That's exactly what happens. Like, it's it's a ludicrous, ludicrous vehicle. So it's got raised ride height, it's got tough springs, it's got underbody protection, it's got spare wheels on the back, it's got chunky tyres, it's got... Big roll cage. Big roll cage. The map light is incandescent rather than LED bulb because the guys from Rally Raid know that if you've been hammering around the wilderness in the dark for hours and hours and hours, an LED light will put more strain on your eyes than a standing condescent bulb. So it's got two saddlebags on the nose, but the one, if you're looking at it, the one on the left side of the car actually hides a hardcore air filter that uses the same stuff in it as an Abrams tank. (laughs) All the electrics have been raised, so you can basically submerge your legs in the cabin and still keep going. Same with the exhaust pipe. It's got traction boards bolted to the back of it, that in the US, you've got these things called Max Tracks things. Basically, if you get stuck somewhere, you wedge one under a wheel and then you can slowly go. This uses military temporary bridge building tech. <laughs> they were apparently enormously expensive and you can fold them and you can jump on them and you can do all manner of stuff with them and they won't break, but they weigh nothing. When I saw pictures of the thing, my first impression was, you know, it looked like it should come with a free pith helmet. You know, that was, uh, <laughs> that was okay to Yes, me. it should. It's it a should. bit steampunk, isn't it? But it's not four-wheel drive. It's no. only rear-wheel drive. So what it is, is it's a Morgan Plus 4. Yeah. So the powertrain, rather than the diff that was on it before, they've now got a BMW X-Drive diff. But the rest of the powertrain is standard. So I was tooling around in a six-speed manual at 30, 40 miles an hour, jumping over lumps and rocks and doing skids in dust and basically having the time of my life. It was the most bizarre thing. I felt like sort of, what if the bright young things but the apocalypse? <laughs> yes. It was truly, truly bizarre, but it was designed to be the go-anywhere Morgan. Yeah. It's the toy you buy when the country you own has a difficult-to-get-to thing and your Range Rover's boring. It's like an aerial nomad in some ways, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of the yeah. only the only competitive vehicle. Yeah. The only thing is, mm. well, the Rally Rage UK guys are like, well, the nomad will do this and this will also do it, but we designed it, yeah. so yeah. it'll be better. <laughs> It's kind of hooligan versus gentleman, you know, it's that... Yes, uh, hooligan versus gentleman, yeah, right? That's yeah. fair comment. How much is it? It is £170,000 plus local taxes, which is a lot of money. They're only building eight. No, eight! And they're all sold. Mm. All done. All sold, all gone. I asked if they could do more, and they were like, we, they could have sold more, but whether or not they will. Because the thing is, to make it do everything it will do, which is go over pretty much anything it costs an enormous amount of money. So at that kind of price point, at £200,000 for a car, you have to be careful, because you can do, we'll do 140 
and 140 people might go, yeah, but why would I have one of those? It's ridiculous. Whereas when it's eight, yep. the kind of people that are doing mm. it, I wasn't given names, I wasn't given anything in particular, but there is one chap who wants it to live on his boat, so they've put mounting <laughs> points as part of the structure on that guy's car so it can be craned on and off his boat on a daily basis. Fantastic. And why is it called the CXT? What does that stand for? Do we know? So CX is the... Um, is that the platform? Is the platform. The... It's the chassis. So the CX generation platform is what they call it, and it's their new decade of tech that goes underneath it. So it's, it's the next version on from the aero platform. And it's yeah. CX is Roman numerals for 110, and it was introduced in Morgan's 110th year. It was developed in Morgan's 110th year. See, I knew you'd have the answer. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I did do the reveal video of it at the Geneva Motor Show a couple of yeah. years ago. And you love a bit of Morgan, don't you? I adore Morgan. That's why I do their stuff, because I thoroughly, thoroughly love it. We get it. Um, it's a ludicrous thing. It's so much fun, because I was given the Silverstone Rally School and told, well, you've got an hour go play mm. and I was just hammering around and it was great and it, the whole thing was sort of shaking and wobbling but it wasn't horrible the horrible thing was I just felt uncomfortable as I was doing such terrible things to such a lovely car yeah 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 <laughs> it still looks a bit low to me to be battering around unmade roads you know? I went over a sort of fairly pointy hillock thing and the chap from Rally Raid a bloke called Beedy who was sort of the mastermind behind Dakaring it was like it will get over pretty much anything like that hill if you go too slow you'll beach but just give it a bit of heft and you'll just go over and it'll be fine ignore the noises don't you worry um bd is a kind of man who says exactly what's on his mind and does not care who's listening which is wonderful he's also left a few easter eggs on the car such as there's bd which is his name. There are a few of those kind of in the vehicle that you have to find. There's also a Louvre missing. On the back of a plus four, the, where the sort of spare wheel goes or the kind of wheel hole goes, it's a louvered rear. But there's a Louvre missing. Why? And there's a reason for that? There's some significance? Because it'll annoy someone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How good is that? Nothing Very is cheeky, ever perfect. Yeah. It will annoy someone. This guy does the Dakar with his wife. Like, they're hardcore. Oh, nice. The people behind this, they don't cock about, which is what I really love about it. So, well, I'm, I'm just writing in a thing now. It would be so easy to dismiss it as a kind of badge and stickers job. Uh, and, oh, look, they've put big tyres on it and it won't really do that. I will. Really stupid. I love it. I mean, it, the, the steering's a bit light and it's very expensive and there is no conceivable use for it. But as a thing that exists... Good. It's been thoroughly re-engineered to do the job. Like I say, you know, you know, one of the reasons that you couldn't really criticise it as a badge and tickers job is that it isn't a plus four with a bit of bodywork. No. It's been properly re-engineered to do the stupid job that it can do. Yeah. And yeah, not many people, nobody needs it to do that. But if you want it to do that and you've got the money, Why fantastic. Not? And it's wonderful that a British manufacturer is making that silly, beautiful little thing. Yeah, wonderful. Do you know what it reminds me of? And Zog, you may just about remember this. Alex, I think you're probably too young to remember this. But in, uh, God, when was it? The late 60s, early 70s, there were a couple of massive international rallies. One which went to Mexico, the World Cup rally. Then there was a London to Sydney rally as well. And the cars oh which God. emerged for that, the Escort, Mexico. Gonna say, yeah, escort. That's yeah, yeah, where yeah, the Mexico yeah. came from. You know, what they did was they mm. beefed up this rally escort to Mexico spec and then introduced that whole culture of the Ford 
escort Mexico. But also in the sort of international rallies of the time, there was stuff like a BMC 1800 Land Crab, which had been utterly beefed up in exactly the same way to make it all the way to the other side of the planet. This Morgan, because it's an old-fashioned looking thing and it's low and beefy, it evokes that culture as well, which is no bad thing. It's a sort of area of car modding and culture that we haven't been recently. And I like that. It's genuinely original. Mm. I'd love to have a going one. Now, I have to make an apology. I was hoping, Alex, to talk to you at length about another car that I know you've driven recently, but we're kind of over time and... I don't know. Is it worth talking about this car? Can you summarise it in four minutes? Yeah, yeah, I can summarise it in four minutes. I'm talking about the mid-engine Corvette, which is what, the CR7? This is the C8. The the CR7 was a race car, and it was mega, and it sounded awesome at Le Mans. So the C8, it's the eighth-generation Chevrolet Corvette, and it's coming to Britain. And I went to Germany the other day to drive it. It's got it was a 6.2 litre V8, 400 and something million horsepower, 0 to 62 in three and a half seconds, top speed... 180, 190-ish. You know, it's a proper sports car. It's a proper it's a supercar. Yeah, but a blue-collar supercar. A blue-collar supercar. It will retail here at under 80 grand when it comes out. Wow! The launch edition will be over 80, just by a hair, which makes it, like, performance for breadth of ability, mega. Mm. Because the steering's great, it's quick. The gearbox is an eight-speed dual-clutch, Chevy's first, or so they say. It's fast. It's got all the toys. Forward visibility is really good. They've worked super hard to make sure that you see out of the cockpit. There's no bonnet in the way because it's mid-engine. It kind of drops off quite quickly. You have haunches on either side. It's like sitting in an Elise. A bit like a Lotus. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the Becker point so you can see and where you can place the car. Yeah. But you see, even in its lowest position, and I am not a tall man, as you both know, I did feel like I was kind of strapped onto the front of something rather than driving in it which is a bit of a pain the steering wheel's weird as well because it's a two-spoke job but the spokes are quite low which means if you want to indicate you need to reach up and around or if you want to use some of the multifunction things on the wheel you've got to reach around it because it's really awkward and that was irritating there's loads of buttons in there which i'm told you get used to and you sort of feel for but it's yeah yeah that was annoying hey who doesn't enjoy a reach round well you know it's tuesday at the moment because we're not the weekend yet (laughs) it is confidently ugly it is a deeply unappealing looking car it's very brash i think it's quite macho i think it's gruff yeah but it's not elegant there's no elegance to that it's this is a supercar which is fine but it, not for me. Has the Corvette ever been elegant? C7 I mean, was hot. It, 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 C6 and C7 were really hot. As the Stingray, C3, yeah. Yeah. C1, beautiful car. Yeah, okay, yeah. That I was elegant. That. Yeah, yeah. The C4 and the C5, not so much. But the Corvettes always had more of the brutish appeal than elegant and beautiful. Yeah, that's cool, but that's going to count against it here. Yeah. Because it's genuinely a brilliant car to drive. Like, absolutely loved it. Yeah. I ended up having a chat on the plane back with TV's Tiff Nadell, and he rather enjoyed it as well. He was sort of waxing lyrical, going, oh, it's great. I like this and I like that. I went, oh, good, I wasn't wrong. The problem it has is that when you're looking at seventy, eighty thousand pounds 80,000 that is a lot of money for a car. And if you're in kind of stratosphere where that isn't a lot of money then you won't be looking at a Corvette. If you're in the stratosphere where you've saved up or you kind of can comfortably afford it, but that's going to be your one toy, if you're British, do you go for 
the Corvette that does everything, but it's the American supercar and not as famous over here? Or do you buy a Porsche? Or do you buy a car that's sold in right-hand drive? Because I'm guessing this won't be right-hand drive. Oh, I said, yeah, we're, no, we're getting a right-hand oh, drive. No, this is right-hand drive. They're going to do a right-hand drive version. Yep. I saw it. It's real. That's interesting. And yeah, yeah, a, right, okay. a first for the Corvette, isn't it? Yep. It would be a shame, in a way, if they didn't do slightly better with it. Let's hope they do do well, because they do seem to have worked very hard on this iteration of the Corvette in all kinds of ways. Mm. The dynamics of it, making the transition to mid-engine, they do seem to put a lot of thought and a lot of work into making it a more refined and a better driving experience than for all that we might love previous Corvettes. They haven't always been the most refined and livable vehicles. This one is refined. It's comfy. Yeah, exactly. It's quiet. It's smooth. It's good. But yeah, it's confidently ugly and it's (laughs) at that weird price point where unless you really want a Corvette, you won't buy a Corvette. Mm. And I bet it's upset loads of purist Americans who say that the Corvette has to be front-engined and it's not a Corvette if it's got an engine in the middle. Well, it's been rumoured for years and years and years that there was going to be a mid-engine Corvette. It's a bit like the autocar baby Jag front cover. Yeah. <laughs> that it was always rumoured that it was going to be a thing and then wasn't and now finally it is. Mm. Yeah. A bunch of American colleagues and friends got in touch and went, there are better supercars but at least you're getting the good Corvette. It was a good car. Mm. Yeah. The engine runs out a bit of steam at the top end. It is ugly. I can't iterate that enough. I think it's colour dependent. If you get it in black, you can't see the shapes. So that'd probably be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fast. It's really good to drive, but it's not a Porsche. Zoggy, <laughs> yeah. would you have yeah. one over a classic front engine Corvette? I don't mean a classic, I mean, a, you know, previous generation front engine Corvette. Um. I think I'd have to drive it to decide, you know. Honestly, I think I would really be very happy to have either. I do, you know, for all my love of fancy European and German automobiles, I do love a Corvette. And there you go. And that's the title of Zog's new series on Netflix, which I'm going to suggest. It's called Drive to Decide. (laughs) That'll work. You've been listening to Alex Goy. Bye. To Zog. Goodbye. Earlier on, you were listening to the croaky voice of Sarah, and I was Gareth. We'll see you guys in another fortnight for another edition of Gareth Jones on Speed. See ya. Say bye, boys. Bye. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to GarethJones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed! Woo! <laughs>